take your Bible now, if you would, to the book of John. John chapter 11, please. In your Bible, John chapter 11. We continue today our series entitled, Why Christianity is Special. I'm so glad that you're here today. The crowd is wonderful. Singing has been great. And uh, the response is baptistic. Amen. Well, recently we had a ladies' conference. We had one complaint. When we, our ladies made a mistake and wanted folks to give their comments. <laughs> mistake number one. If we're doing it for God, we don't care what people think. But we had one negative response. Too much karaoke. That means we goofed and used the soundtrack. I wish I could have heard that one over there this morning, don't you? We don't need soundtracks. We don't need anybody else's condemnation either. They don't like it, they can go butt a stump. For the glory of God. Amen. Amen. They say, well, we don't know if those folks who are playing on those soundtracks are right with God. Dear God, how many piano players are right with God? (laughs) Give me a break, would you? Give me a break. I know we got guitar players. None of them are right with God. (laughs) You know, but, uh, you know, I thank God for the talent that God has given our church and sent our way. I don't ever take take for granted those folks who play that piano and and the folks who uh, help with the singing and so forth and so on. But I do wish that you folks who can sing specials would be faithful to the choir. It's not a qualification. But, oh, are you going to be embarrassed when we get to heaven? Because that's what we're singing for. We're not singing for this crowd. We're singing for that crowd in heaven. And, oh, how faithfulness plays such a significant part, whether it's in a family. Watch kids. They'll be a direct reflection of the faithfulness of the parent. Oh, how we need to learn to be faithful. And uh, anybody can be faithful. Takes no talent, no education required, no significant kind of makeup. Anybody can be faithful. That has nothing to do with what I'm preaching on. 
Tonight I want to begin a series entitled The Fruit of the Spirit. The Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the month of bearing fruit, looking unto Jesus in our fruit. I'll tell you, he can do a lot more with our fruit than we can. Because Galatians talk about the works of the flesh and they are manifest. It goes down through there with a whole list of works of the flesh. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit are thus, thus, and thus. When he concludes that, he said, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the fruits thereof. Oh, I think if you'd be faithful for Sundays, nights, we could learn what Jesus could do in us and what it would produce in us would manifest on the outward. Please be faithful to those and I'll, I'll let you out in a decent time. Tomorrow night is a deacon's meeting. And I asked Brother Jim, is tomorrow night the first Monday night? He said, yes, and that's when the championship basketball game is being played also. (laughs) And I said, Brother Jim, do you think the game's going to start about seven? He said, exactly. (laughs) John chapter 11. We're going to talk a little bit this morning, and I'll be gracious of your time. Could I please invite your attention and allow me to explain to you the purpose of the book of John? As you know, the book of John and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all those are known as the Gospels. All the Gospels present Jesus in a different setting, in a different way. Matthew presents Jesus as king. Therefore, he has a genealogy. All kings should have a good genealogy. Pedigree, if you please, for you rednecks. We rednecks. I've always told my kids, if you marry, look at the pedigree. You haven't said that, preacher. Well, three of them are here today. Ask them if I told them to check the pedigree before they say I do. Pedigree has a lot to do with it. And so as Matthew presents our Lord as king, he presents a pedigree that goes all the way back to David, the king. Luke presents him as a servant. But John presents him as God. Notice chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2 and down to verse 14. And I'd like to kind of lay a groundwork today and review as to what we're trying to accomplish in the book of John. The Bible says in verse 1, have your Bible now, verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning 
was the Word. And the Word was with God. And don't you like this next phrase? And the Word was God. Notice the capitalization of Word and God. Recently, as you know, we have we have a Spanish ministry. Those of you who are visited don't know that. But on Tuesday morning, our Spanish pastor preaches to about 60 plus uh, Spanish speaking people at a certain industry in our community. Amen. And I so appreciate the opportunity of him doing that. I had no idea he's doing it. 6.30 every morning he gets up and preaches. Dear Lord, can you imagine what my sermon would be at 6.30 in the morning? (laughs) Recently they asked us to buy some Bibles for those men. And we bought some Bibles for those men and have pictures of Brother Franco passing them out. But the folks who own the business has a problem with the word being capitalized. And the God being capitalized. They said you can pass out those Spanish Bibles, but you can't pass out those King James Bibles. That's in America, folks. That's folks who attend so-called Christian churches in our community. Don't pass out those old antique Bibles that capitalize the word. Why is the word capitalized? Why is God capitalized? That equates deity to the one it is referring to. Notice verse 2. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him. The word that is capitalized. If the word is not capitalized, he cannot create. All things were created by him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. In him. Oh, Oh, now they equate personality to the word. In him, the word was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is allowing you and I to behold his glory. He who 
is the Word. He who is God became flesh and dwelt among us that we might behold His glory. Then this book is about Him. John is about Him. It's not about the wine that was made wine out of water. It's not about the blind man that was healed and now he sees. It's not about Nicodemus who coming in the dark of the night trying to find out how to be saved. It's not about the woman at the well who now has gone back home and brought all the town back to the well to see he who has become flesh and we need to behold his glory. The only reason Jesus ever committed and ever created or ever ever performed one miracle is that we might behold His glory. If you'll notice, as we study the book of John, the miracles seem to take on greater and and greater difficulty to us. He begins with an insignificant little thing like changing water to wine. Not a very big deal. Have you tried it? (laughs) Some of you folks said, man, I wish I could do that. I wouldn't get caught buying it that way. But to God now, there's no difference if you please. In the miracle performed in John 2 and the one he's going to perform in John 11. Please be informed and don't ever forget it's all about him. You understand that? The book of John is not about us, it's about him. Our preaching should, should be about him. Our giving should be about Him. Our singing should be about Him. Our faithfulness should be about Him. Please, it's all about Him. I bring you now to John 11. There's no way in the world that we could ever cover the entire chapter in one session. But I am going to try to skip around just a little bit and try to cover for our learning today. I would like to behold His glory. God, how mercy I would like to lift us above this old flesh, selfish, ego kind of reality and lift us above all of this that we might experience His glory. Oh, how how limited we do feel 
when we dive into the book of God and see how wonderful and magnificent and majestic and wonderful he is. And then we look into a mirror and all we see is flesh, jealousy, The Bible says in verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus. Of Bethany, two miles just outside of Jerusalem. Even till this day, A community of about a thousand lived there, most of them Arabs. Guess what the name of the city is now? The city of Lazarus. Ain't that significant? Arabs don't believe our Bible, but in the Arab language, the name of the city is the city of Lazarus. Wow. Ain't God great. Wonder why they didn't call it the city of Allah or Muhammad. You know why? Because Muhammad is still dead. You're welcome. Now I know that great truth would be worth a lot of money if you was anywhere except in church. The Bible says, the town of Mary and Martha, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, her sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Wouldn't be something God could get glory out of our sickness. Wouldn't it be something if folk could see Jesus in us when we're sick? You say, I don't understand why I'm sick. Boy, wouldn't it be great for the glory of God? Well, that ain't the kind of God I serve. Well, what kind of God do you serve? Or do you serve God? Or do you expect God to serve you? Because if it's God's will, you're always well, sick, financially secure, and healthy. You found you another God someplace because that's not the one in the Bible. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
When he heard, there, uh, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Wow, he must not care. Now, I could call you today and say, Joe Smo is lost and on his way to hell, may die tomorrow. Or I could call you and say, Joe Smo just was diagnosed with cancer. Which one would move you the quickest? Would cancer or physical sickness move us? Quicker than spiritual sickness and imminent spiritual death. Well, if we waited two days to witness to a cancer patient, we would be marked as not caring and uncompassionate and so forth and so on. Let's go on, please. I do not want to upset you at all today. The Bible says, after that, then after that, he said to his disciples, verse 7, let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. Verse 14, the Bible says, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is, what's the next word? Do we need a commentary to interpret that verse for us? He's dead. Look at this next phrase. And I am glad. Now you have an excuse that when I die, you can say, I am glad. He's dead, and Jesus said, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. And he leaves. Verse 18, now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was come, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou had us been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am. Just look up here. 
Do you know something about I am? Never late. Never early. Not I was or I will be. I am. You know what Jesus is telling her? I'm right on time. I think somebody sings a song four days late and yet on time. Right on time. Hey, sometimes you think and kind of feel like God's late in your situation. Oh, yeah, I remember old John going through all that pain. And, and you walk in here and you'd be floating off the, you know, taking all that medicine and stuff. And just praying, asking God to help. Garrett couldn't walk for several weeks, almost a year. We kept praying. Sometimes do you feel like that God needs to hurry up. He said, now, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Is that good? Anybody here believe that? I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Have you ever been dead in trespasses and in sins? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, so death has passed upon men in it all. And death has passed upon all men in it all have sinned. Do you know anybody who used to be dead in sins? Have you experienced a spiritual resurrection? Some of us don't act like it. The Bible says in verse 26, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Look at that next phrase. Martha. Do you believe this? Now that's the problem. The problem is not that he can't walk on water. The problem is, do you believe he can? The problem is not that he cannot turn water to wine. It's just that you have enough money to buy it. The problem is not that he cannot fix your situation. The problem is, Do you believe he can? The slightest little problem drives us to the bar or to a neighbor or to somebody else's husband or somebody else's wife. Martha, do you believe that your brother can be raised Today. That's kind of getting tough. Are you listening? Let me talk about something we all hate. Death. The great equalizer in all of humanity is death. 
I don't care how much money you got. I don't care how much education you got. I don't care how many muscles you got. I don't care what kind of vocabulary you got. I don't care where you've been, where you're going, or how long you stayed when you was there. I don't care how big a house you got. I don't care what kind of car you drove. I don't care what kind of business you got, what kind of occupation you got. Everybody is on equal grounds when it comes to death. Would you agree? You say, well, that guy besides me, he smells worse than I do. Wait four days after death. Take your perfume with you. You're going to need it. It only takes God one nth of a second to shut off the air and you and I become worm food. Well, I'm educated. Then maybe the worms will graduate. I don't like that. I can't help that. Death is the equalizer. Puts us all on the same ground, if you please. Because there's one thing that links not only Christians, but Baptist and Muslims and Buddhist and heathen alike. We're all going to die. The wages of sin is death. Death has passed upon all men. For then all have sinned. Death is an appointment we all must keep. Years ago, I was reading about a faithful, faithful person to church. Lying on the deathbed in a hospital close by. And the brothers and sisters of the church and family members are gathered all around. And he began to question if he should die, is he going to go to heaven? One after one passed by and tried to assure him and reassure him, sir, you've been faithful to church all your life. I've seen you do good deeds for everybody I know. You're you're a gracious man. I know, he said, but I'm not sure that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. Go find that Baptist preacher and bring him. I want him to talk to me. And another one would assure him, another one would assure him. And finally, they walked by and someone said, you need to realize you're a good man. And he looked at him and said, look, I have a religion to live by. Now I need one that I can die by. Because all are going to die. You say, preacher, you're crazy. Yes, I know. People are asking, is death The end of it all. 
People are asking all about us. Is there life after death? The only one I know to ask would be Lazarus. (laughs) Or maybe he who raised Lazarus. Now, I couldn't ask Muhammad. And I certainly wouldn't want to ask Buddha. I wonder if we can answer those questions or not. Why is there death anyhow? Will we someday live again? If I believed in incarnation, I know what I'd want to come back incarnated as a two-headed chigger. And I know some folks I'd like to get on. (laughs) That's free. Those questions, I think, deserve an answer. Or we could join the 27 people We're banking on modern science to someday find or engineer the fountain of youth because these 27 people are patients of Alcor Life Extension Institute in Scottsdale, Arizona. Their bodies have been frozen in liquid nitrogen at minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit waiting for the day when medical science comes up with an answer to extend life. It only cost $120,000 to have the entire body frozen. 17 of the patients did not have 120,000, so they chose just to have their head froze for 50,000, hoping that technology one day would be to the advanced degree to where that their new body could be grown from cells from their body or from their head. It's called cryonics is what it's called. Good name, cry on it. You can imagine, cryonics has its share of critics and skeptics. I, I, I noticed some of you who might have a glee of uh, skepticism about uh, one day the molecular science would come up with the avenue by which you could be thawed out and walk around again. Well, 
I think there's a more certain way of finding eternal life and eternal youth. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I like what Jesus said when he said, I am the answer to all of your questions. I am the answer to all of your sicknesses and your dilemma. As we read this, I look at the watch. I've got about five minutes. As we read this, what can we learn? I could teach you about cryonics. I could teach you... Uh, not how to get $120,000. I could tell you where to go that you could get froze. Now, I read about a preacher in Arkansas. This actually happened. He froze his mother-in-law hoping that he could raise her from the dead. Just in case he didn't work, she's froze. I, I think that's good. I got to look and see if my mother-in-law's here before I wise crack. <laughs> We have a deep freeze at our house, too, in case it don't work. I'm just kidding, Mom. What can we learn from reading this story? I think, can we behold His glory a little while? Can, can we take our eyes off of this and just behold Him for a little while? What can we learn? Number one we can learn that our Lord is compassionate. Amen. Number two, we can learn our Lord is in control. Amen. And I like that, don't you? Yes, sir. I said, do you like that? Amen. He was in control when Lazarus died. When the ladies met him and started weeping and pointing fingers, he's still in control. Aren't you glad today that there is never a time when he who created everything has not been in control? Yes, sir. Lastly, we'll discover that he is Christ. He's the Christ. He's compassionate. He's in control. And he is the Christ. Notice, if you would please, verse 33 through 36. Have you ever heard this old saying, actions speak louder than words? Look at the action. Verse 33, the Bible says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with him, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Sovereignty weeping. Majesty weeping. Creator of all King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, he's weeping. 
weeping. Does that say anything to you? Don't tell me you care. Show me you care. Preacher, I'm hurting with you. Show me. Don't talk about it. Action speaks louder than words. Our Lord was compassionate. And the Bible says that he wept. But God commended his love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Could I ask you a question? The time is 20 after. Why did Jesus weep? Why was our Lord weeping? He was in control. Not only he was in control, he was arranging the events. And yet, he wept. He who is in charge, he who is orchestrating. He who mothered it all, he who brought it all to pass, he who arranged it all, he weeps. Why would he weep? I think he wept because he saw the hurt and the sorrow of Mary and Martha and the family. When I preach a funeral for 45 years, before I stand, and I'm not bragging on me, please, I'm just telling you, not a funeral have I ever preached in 45 years. Have I failed to pray and ask God before I stepped in the pulpit, please help me feel a little bit of what they feel. That way I can empathize, not sympathize. That way I can feel and yet still be constructive and comforting and uplifting. Our Lord felt their need and felt their sorrow and felt their hurt. Did you know you've not hurt one time that our Lord has not been concerned? You've not had one sorrow, not one hurt, disappointment, except our Lord felt what you felt. That's why Christianity is special. He was tempted in all fashions, such as we, and yet without sin. He was bruised. He was beaten. He suffered hurt and hunger. He suffered thirst. He suffered hardship. Why? So he could empathize and feel what you feel and be a God that can understand what you feel. He cried because he felt what they felt. Secondly, he knew something that was worth crying about. Now listen. We don't realize this. We don't act as though we realize this. But our Lord wept secondly because he knew the effects of sin. Anybody have any idea why people have to die? 
Does anybody here have any idea why people die? It's not heart attack. It's not cardiac arrest. It's not, it's not uh, coronary failure. The wages of sin is what? Verse 1 talks about a man that is sick. Fatally sick. Have you ever had anybody in your family fatally sick? Today we call in hospice. And we say when we call in hospice, it's just a matter of time. John chapter 11 opens and hospice has been called. The morphine has been given. A man is sick because of sin. And our Lord if he cares one iota and if a tear ever fell off the cheek of our Lord I think it's because he realized it knew the effects of sin sin's going to kill you they may diagnose it as your wife shot you It's because she's a sinner. (laughs) And you had to die because you're a sinner. Our Lord wept. Yes, he did. He wept because somebody else was hurting. But deeper, deeper than a fleshly cry, deeper than an emotional cry, Tears, something deep down inside. He realized the effects of sin and it, he wept. Would to God we could realize the effects our sin is having on us and those about us. Why well, say it was, why well, was Lazarus sick? Because of sin. Why did Lazarus die? Because of sin. Why are people suffering today? It's because of sin. Why are little children starving? It's because of sin. Why are varmints selling little girls and little boys into sexual slavery? It's because of sin. Why do we get puffed up and jealous and mad at everybody else? It's because of sin. Why do we blame everybody else for what's going on in our life? It's because of sin. And our Lord looked and saw the effect of sin and realized that sin is a serious business. But we do no longer think that sin is a serious business. It's pleasure. It's having fun. It's for going for the gusto. Today we live. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. He cried. 
He was compassionate. Would anybody say amen? amen? I thought of something, and I'm going to close with this. I'm not going to finish with the rest of it because of the length of the hour. I just jotted this down yesterday. Thought it'd be worth saying. Compassion without action is useless. To talk about how much you love somebody and not do anything about it is hypocritical. Thank God our Savior commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I said something about death a while ago and nobody likes talking about death. You notice that? I talk about death and folk want to dress in black. Would it be all right if I give you some good news? The other day I was out at the ranch and I have an old blue tractor. It's been sitting there a while and those yellow jackets, they have no preference at all where they build their nest. They do not call me and ask me where on my tractor would they like for me to build the nest. And they built a nest right under the fender on the top. Right where I place my hand when I'm driving me tractor. Well, we had a conflict. (laughs) Right? When I reached over and grabbed that fender, there was something very soft underneath the fender that I'd grabbed with my hand. And I saw them little boogers coming out of there, and I started flinging and yelling I did not cuss (laughs) but where I spit the grass ain't never going to grow again (laughs) before that little episode finished four or five of those little varmints had left their stinger in my arm after they did that They could just run around in my hand here. I just made pets out of those that had stung me. Now they're harmless. Can't hurt you anymore. Have you felt in your immediate family the sting of death what hurts behold I show you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment 
in the twinkle of an eye at the last trump. But the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall be raised. Incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now don't forget, I've got them five little yellow jackets in my hand here. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death swallowed up in victory. Now, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death, the sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, the sovereign Savior, has taken the sting out of death. And we who are Christians can hold death in our hand and look at it and not be afraid, knowing that it has no more sting. Jesus Christ, the sovereign Savior of the universe, has reached in and pulled a sting and the dread, and the hurt out of death. Because death has been swallowed up in victory through the resurrection and the life. 